Hi, welcome to another MLUX podcast. My name is Mike Swift. I am MLUX's Chief Global Data Privacy and Security Correspondent. And I'm speaking to you today from San Francisco, California. One of the great things about being based in Silicon Valley is that from time to time, you can get the chance to sit across the table from some of the most important people in some of the world's largest tech companies and ask them questions about their business. And that's what I did recently with Google's top lawyer, Halima Delane Prado. Delane Prado is Google's general counsel, a job she's held for about nearly four years now. But she's actually been with Google much longer, for about two-thirds of Google's 25-year lifetime. And there's rarely been a time in Google's history when it's been under more legal pressure than it's under right now, uh, facing litigation in both the antitrust and privacy area across the country, as well as uh, increased regulation in Europe and the rest of the world. And we talked about uh, many of those those issues in my conversation uh, with Delane Prado. But we started out just talking about her job as general counsel. I think if I was going to describe the role, I'll probably go a little bit more in the weeds and describe it as effectively managing a law firm, but from within a company. What does that mean? There's a bit of air traffic control involved, in part because you have multiple teams with different specialties. When you go to a law firm as an individual, you might have a need for someone to help you write a will, for someone to help you draft a contract, for someone to help you navigate a dispute, or perhaps you've been sued. A law firm inside a company or an in-house department, if you will, offers a multitude of services for the business. I think the difference is, and what's unique about my job, is that it's, it's not just sort of the litigators who defend the company or the patent attorneys who might patent cutting-edge technology, but there's also attorneys and legal professionals that help advise the business on how to launch a new product in a particular country, globally, or what have you. And so there's a lot of advice and counseling as well. So throw that into sort of one big group of about 1,400 legal professionals, and that kind of sums up my job. Can you describe Google's in-house law firm uh, in terms of its size and how it's changed over time and, you know, how, how sort of what the divisions of labor are between areas such as privacy and antitrust? Sure. So currently we're about 1,400 globally, give or take. When I started back in 2006, uh, we were just shy of 200 legal team members globally. So if you think sort of 17 years have gone by, that's a fair amount of growth. Mm-hmm. That said, it's a fairly lean legal team if you actually consider the scope and reach of the products and services that we offer right now. And effectively sort of how we provide that service kind of in a a, a lean way is that we've created sort of back, I want to say in 2004, 2005, the unique role of what's called a product council. A product council was sort of created to be a mini general council, if you will, for a specific product, say Gmail, really understanding the actual underpinnings of that business or product. How does it work? What is the product manager trying to achieve? And how do you partner with the business to make it possible legally? And so we have a group of product counsel who are deployed to different areas of the business. They're sort of right-hand legal guidance, if you will. Now, while we've got those people sort of embedded with the business, we can't possibly expect them to know the intricacies of copyright law, the intricacies of privacy law. And so there will be times where there are questions that are raised where you need the advice of what I will say the subject matter expert. And that's where other areas of the legal department come into play. We have privacy specialists, competition specialists, 
copyright, patent, trademarks, all also sort of well kind of educated about the business of Google, but to do so with a lens within their specific, uh, I would say, subject matter expertise. And they work together. They work together to provide sort of a, a panoply of sort of legal guidance and strategy to help the business launch their products. Now, that's kind of the how we launch businesses. Now, occasionally we get sued. <laughs> and so not to be outdone, <laughs> we have a whole host of litigators as well who are there not just to defend the company when we're sued, but to actually look for opportunities where we can proactively shape the law. Mm. So areas in which we can protect our consumers. We might proactively go after sort of a, you know, cyber sort of like malfeasance, if you will, that's looking to kind of bilk senior citizens out of fake puppy ads to actually sort of disseminating malware. And so we look for opportunities not just to defend ourselves, but to actually shape and help protect our consumers. So there's that aspect of the team as well. Could you just talk a little bit more about the last, I mean, shape the law. So you would be looking for a case where conceivably a judge might make case law that would benefit Google or its consumers, basically. Exactly right. And and the areas that I mentioned, really, when you think about malware or types of scammy behavior, it's hard for the individual sort of senior citizen that's been scammed from responding to a puppy ad, wanting a puppy, sending money to some sort of like nameless, faceless email handle, and then no puppy and out of money, right? The amount of times where that actually might happen whether or not that individual has the you know, resources or even just the energy to want to go after that person is hard. And so we look for opportunities where we hear about aspects where we can actually use our sort of you know, opportunity, amount of attorneys and what have you, where we're seeing sort of bad behavior happen to help shape in that regard. Other areas where we also try to look for opportunities will be in the cases of, I will say, and we've done this in the past, false uh, DMCA or copyright takedown requests. There are some folks who abuse the process by which we go through sort of notice and takedown for copyright infringement. And that can mean that a particular creator has actually been sort of falsely removed because of a false claim of copyright infringement. And so in a few cases years back, we saw that trend happening, saw an opportunity to actually bring that sort of to a judge and actually help shape and create the precedent that that behavior is not tolerated. So the very first story I wrote about Google was back in 2008. Uh, it was when I, I sort of an investigative story where um, I looked at the EEOC filings of a group of Silicon Valley companies and kind of looked at kind of the lack of diversity there. And the law seems to be one area where women and including women of color are making progress and winning in-house leadership roles. And I was wondering why you thought that you might think that is. It's a good question. I would say this. Many companies, and Google would be one of them, inherently get the notion that a diverse workforce breeds diverse ideas, which in turn breeds diverse innovation. And if your goal is to be universally helpful to folks in the world, you should reflect the diversity of the world in which you are helping, you are just helping, period. And so within that, when I joined Google back in 2006, that very much was the ethos, not just of the company, but in fact, the legal department. The notion was you can't possibly do your sort of full best <laughs> to counsel about whether or not a product is thinking of things the right way, thinking about global, regional differences or what have you, if you don't actually have a workforce that reflects that diversity. And I think for at least within Google and certainly within the legal department, we've sort of actually striven to achieve a level of global diversity within our legal professionals in terms of experience, um, in terms of where they sit, in terms of what they bring to bear. 
So I think, honestly, it's just good business uh, to actually sort of employ that. And the company has been sort of, I think, pretty aggressive about that, that particular principle. We do that sort of in how we launch the types of products that we're launching, be it Google Translate, making sure that we're looking into, say, the multitude of languages, say, in India to reach folks to how we actually sort of fight for the diversity of our workforce, say in the immigration space with visas and what have you. It really is sort of core to our mission that we reflect the world that we are actually trying to participate in. I was recently uh, covering a conference at Stanford for a general counsel. This is the thing Mark Lemley puts on every year. And one of the co-organizers of the uh, conference said, um, this is the worst regulatory climate for Silicon Valley I've seen in my lifetime. Nobody disagreed with that person. Um, that was really the kind of the tenor of the conversation that day. And I'm wondering, um, how do we get here? And do you see it changing? I'm a cautious optimist. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spin your question a little bit differently. I actually think it's the most active regulatory climate, um, but in part because from a technological standpoint, it's been the most active on a technical space in my lifetime, right? If I think about sort of when I was a grade student, the type of technology I was exposed to, right? A basic computer, slight coding, maybe an old school Atari console, to now what my children are able to quote unquote game on, what I'm capable of doing with a handheld mobile phone, that jump in the span of a few decades has been astounding. And if you think about sort of the notion of it being important, and I'll say within AI, for example, when you have kind of a broad sweeping, incredibly impactful technology, like AI. AI is too important not to regulate, but it's also too important not to regulate well. And so part of that is we have supported sort of governments to come in and actually really take a look at sort of like responsible ways in which to protect their consumers with the technology that is sort of shifting in their daily lives and how to accomplish that. The reason why I think we're sort of in this kind of new kind of era of, I say, increased regulatory sort of attention is because the amount of technological advancement and opportunity um, and use of tech in daily lives has gone up exponentially. So as that ramps up, so is the opportunity for regulators to ask questions and get involved. And I think that's sort of the current state of affairs that we find ourselves in. Do the companies need to sort of take a different tack or, I mean, is there a need for the companies to change in some way? So I would say yes and no. Um, no in the sense that sort of Google at the outset always sort of employed, say again, the notion of product counsel to help guide a given product team as they launched a product into a region. And so we've always been very squarely sort of focused on responsible innovation and what that looks like. So in terms of sort of our day-to-day -day practice, this is our bread and butter. <laughs> this is what we do. That said, right, you do need to think about how you do that at scale. And it might change the notion as to sort of how you go about moving with efficiency, right? The technology is moving at breakneck speed and so must we. Um, so I think it's more the speed and less so the practice. We've always sort of been very sort of keenly attuned towards thinking about principles of say privacy or regulatory impact. Um, and again, when we launch a given product or service into the world, sitting down with regulators to explain to them how a given product works. And so I actually think our basic practice stays the same, but maybe just the scale of it has grown a bit. In terms of the U.S., we're seeing a lot of failed legislation on privacy and antitrust, a lot of talk, not so much action. Um, but we are seeing certainly some regulators who are viewing things and acting in a very activist way. And it seems surely that it's riskier doing business now than it was four years ago. And I, I'm wondering if you can give any insight into how that's changed your thinking at Google's. 
I don't think it's actually changed our thinking, to be honest with you. I think we've always known that with any sort of new technology, any sort of innovation, there's going to be questions, there's going to be concerns. And so we have to kind of stick to sort of our approach, which is digging deep, understand sort of how our product might be launched in the world and what questions that arise out of it. I don't think this is any different, to be honest. As you look into the notions of privacy and competition, there can be an inherent tension, right? Sort of the idea of sort of increasing competition might actually sort of create unintended consequences in terms of privacy. And so as a company, while we have 100% supported sort of the notions of comprehensive sort of like a federal privacy bill, if you will, in the U.S., doing that in part to sort of address core issues, but do so in a way that is meaningful for consumers, that stays that stays constant for us. On the competition side of the house, I would actually say sort of failed bills aside, there, at least within the AI space within the past year, competition is rife, right? It's vibrant. A year ago, we wouldn't have talked about BARD or ChatGPT, and now there's BARD, ChatGPT, an insert name of a multitude of other sort of AI offerings. And so I think they're sort of trying to grapple with that, right, this notion of wanting to solve a competition problem, if you will, when in fact I think the opportunities and the drive for companies of all shapes and sizes to have a toehold in the AI space to create meaningful change for individuals has probably never been more robust than ever. So I'm using BARD for my search search experience, and it, it's very interesting. Um, you guys made some interesting news last week and that you're linking it up with Gmail and other services. One thing we've seen from the FTC is that they're clearly concerned from the leaked uh, subpoena to OpenAI about whether personal information can be kept from going into training data. And um, kind of a specific question, but um, is that something that your in-house legal team is focusing on? Or can you talk a little bit about how your, um, as BART is being developed, the steps you're taking in-house to protect personal information from getting into the training data or even being you know, published as part of, a, part of the output? Sure. I think in order to sort of answer currently, you got to take a, a bit of a step back to sort of back in the sort of early 2000s when Google first appeared, right? The notion of how we launched our products and what we did with user data was always at the forefront. Um, years and years ago, there have been interviews where you heard sort of attorneys from the department talking about privacy by design. And that stays true even now, even with AI. We have both from our engineers, our product managers, and our lawyers constantly sort of focused on the notion of what is balancing that sort of core principle of notice, choice, and transparency for users within a given particular product. How that's evolved over time just means that we are asking those same questions sort of with each of our products. In the AI space, you see that with both our sort of AI principles, um, our notion of the different sort of commitments that we've signed on to as to how AI is deployed. And that, again, is just a sort of an additional data point that we filter into our assessment when we actually launch a given product out. So not really different in terms of our day-to-day practice, mm-hmm. but just as applied to AI. And you know, even to go back, AI has been used within our products and services for quite some time, right? If you think about sort of the notion of how we have used AI, say, with spam and Gmail, or how we deal with abuse requests that we get, that is all sort of powered in some respects by AI. And so we've been asking ourselves these privacy questions and what have you as we use our own features within our own products. Tell me a little bit more about asking yourselves questions. How does that work? I mean, um, do you have a team that comes up with like risk 
issues or, I mean, could you just talk about that? That sounds fascinating. Sure. So when we think about sort of the notion of privacy principles, and we've said a lot of this kind of publicly about how sort of Google approaches privacy, both in white papers as it relates to AI and otherwise, but fundamentally throughout the company, when you are launching a given product or service, you're asking yourself the question of what data is used to make this product most helpful and useful, right? Being very clear about that with a goal towards minimizing as much data as possible and what actually yields sort of a helpful result for our, for our consumer. Once you kind of ask those questions, this is like a given product manager, not even sort of getting into a lawyer taking that review. What's the notice? What are the transparency? What's the actual sort of core ability for the user to control what of their data is used or not used? Have we built that into the product? And then sort of as you get closer to launch, asking those questions, are there tweaks we can make? We're constantly innovating on products, so let's constantly go back to those questions again. How are we doing? Have we made those sort of policies external? Does a user understand what's happening? And can they have control over what data might be used and how? And making that very much core to how we approach our products. And so that's very much sort of a principle of what we have called privacy by design. Um, and that has sort of been at the outset. Now, of course, as a company of this size and scale, you have to have sort of policies and procedures by which we know to ask those questions. But I don't necessarily know that that's held by a legal team per se. That have been very inherent, I think, within the way that we've launched products for you know over a decade and then some. Going from looking internally to externally, um, sort of looking out across the world, as I know you must do every single day, what tech regulatory trends uh, have you most concerned? Things that might we might mention be data localization, government surveillance, you know, cyber attacks, uh, aggressive regulation. Is there anything stick out that you really see as sort of a danger area for Google or for the industry in general that you, you're concerned about? Less of a trend and more, I think, of a consequence uh, that I worry about that sort of will hit technology generally. And the consequence is that I think governments and regulators are keenly concerned about protecting their consumers or their users, if you will. Inherently important. And I think with that positive intent, you can sometimes end up with a draft legislation or even past legislation that has unintended consequences of diluting or sort of frustrating the very utility that the consumers are relying on. And so I worry, right, that without kind of active regulatory dialogue with folks in the technology space, you push that sort of inadvertent breakage, if you will, sooner as opposed to later. Now, how do we deal with that? <laughs> so the active regulatory dialogue comes into play, right? That is lawyers, product managers, sitting down with governments, explaining how a product launches, and then taking a beat to hear concerns, getting an understanding of what a particular regulator might be worried about, being able to have that active conversation as to how you sort of get that product into the right space is the right path forward. But again, sort of that notion of sometimes it happens first and maybe there's a breakage and then you come back to it. I worry that that will actually sort of reduce the ability for the folks who need technology the most to have access to it. But again, it's more consequence and less trend. Do you feel like you're having enough of those active listening exchanges with regulators in the United States and Europe now? I think so, actually. I think we have sort of long kind of touted the need for sort of like robust regulatory dialogue. We're not always going to agree, <laughs> but the conversation needs to be had. I think at the end of the day, Google wants to provide helpful and useful products. <laughs> Governments want to protect their consumers to be able to use those products safely or without concern or with understanding. 
those aren't two sort of mutually exclusive ideas. And so I think we've been fortunate to sort of have regulatory dialogue across sort of a myriad of governments and regions. So yeah, I think it's it's robust and active, which is useful. I recently uh, had a conversation like this uh, with a regulator, uh, Sam Levine, who's the director of the uh, FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection. And one th intriguing thing he said to me was, uh, to paraphrase him, notice and choice probably was always a fiction, but at this point we've concluded that it has failed. It's a failed regime, was, was his words. And we have moved beyond that, and we're now um, into a phase where we are going to actively move beyond just consent and actually start to limit what companies can collect and how they can use personal data. I'm wondering what you think about notice and choice. Is it a, is it a failed regime uh, without putting you too much on the spot? I don't think it's a failed regime, but I do think it should not be the sole basis upon which we think of privacy protection. What do I mean by that? You need more. <laughs> Technology is complicated. Um, and so to keep up with the complication of the innovations that are coming in day by day by day, we have sort of pushed through a proposal of thinking through this in terms more of privacy-preserving technologies. How are we actually thinking of moving forward with a framework that is as fluid as the technologies that are sort of being developed and put out there. So what do I mean by that? Policies and procedures that ask those questions that we spoke of earlier. What data is needed to make a particular product work? How long does it need to be needed? Does it need to be personally identifiable? If so, why? And what are the choices, options by which it needs to be held? documenting that, asking those questions again as a product iterates over time, and keeping that sort of in a very kind of, you know, regimented, preserved way, such that when you are having questions with regulators and the like, you can come back and answer those questions, right? Um, it also is a way of holding, I think most importantly, companies accountable for the products that they're putting out in the world. So I think, yes, Notice and consent, step one or step zero, if you will. But there is so much more that you need, particularly on an industry level, so that no one company is sort of out in front, but you're sort of the rising tide of sort of privacy-preserving technology lifts all boats. And you're creating a higher and, I think, more sort of broad spread kind of level of accountability across those that are putting products out there. Um, a few questions about Europe, if I might. There are numerous uh, class action uh, style data protection cases against technology and social media companies, including Google in the Netherlands. Um, these are seen as a precursor to EY, an EU-wide increase in um, mass consumer claims. And I'm wondering, are you worried about that, about um, privacy litigation uh, risk in the EU? I mean, do you see that as a major concern going forward? I think litigation for a global company is pretty standard. <laughs> and so the proliferation of it in one region versus another just is a question of focus, to be honest. I think that what remains sort of true is that because we have always had sort of a privacy by design approach that is rooted in notice and transparency, but in turn is moving into other areas, makes us feel good about any sort of incoming litigation or sort of onslaught of suits. We stand by sort of pushing forward the type of notice that meets EU needs as well as sort of U.S. or other needs. And so worried about it, no. Prepared, yes. So when you say feel good, maybe not good that you're more likely to be sued, but good that you're prepared, basically. Good that we're prepared and feel strongly that we've put forth products that are privacy preserving um, and that users have choice and control over what is happening with their data or just the data that's being used. So I 
I believe in our approach, um, and so I believe in sort of our ability to defend our approach. Um, regarding the Digital Services Act, um, Google's one of a number of companies that have been designated a VLOP, a very large online platform, uh, as you know. And some companies have complained about the European Commission's uh, ad transparency database and um, that the API may go beyond what's required in the DSA. And do you share those concerns? So I think transparency reports are something that we at Google have always kind of been supportive of. We've done that as it relates to sort of removals requests and what have you. And so for us, transparency reports is actually, it's a, it's a principle that we've gotten behind. I think the devil's in the details in terms of what that transparency report reveals. And again, that's where you get a little bit into sort of tensions between, say, consumer, consumer protection and privacy. And so I think there's active sort of regulatory engagement from others um, about what's that sweet spot and what that balance is. I think we support the notion, and we do, in fact, do transparency reports, but want to make sure that it's actually sort of balancing out the needs of the various sort of the privacy needs of the consumers that the, the EU is intending to protect. We don't know um, what the U.S. is going to do on regulating AI. Um, we obviously had the, the very interesting meeting uh, convened by uh, the Senate Majority Leader. Google CEO was there, I believe, along with a bunch of other very um, – big names. But in Europe, we have the Draft AI Act. And are you concerned uh, that the new rules on deep fakes may be impossible for companies to comply with? And do you have other concerns about the AI Act as, it, as it's currently, it's not finalized, obviously? Right. So I think this goes to the point of, again, AI being too important to regulate, <laughs> but also too important not to regulate well. And I think because the EU is in the draft act, there's the opportunity to talk through, again, the spirit of what, what's trying to be sort of protected and then the actual practicable ways in which that can happen. I think that's currently in play right now, so remains to be seen. This, to me, is no different than any other sort of law or draft legislation in which we're engaging with regulators to say, here's how we actually current, currently prevent that type of behavior. Is that enough? Is that what you're intending to? Have we missed something? And having that sort of conversation to find out sort of what's left and what can bridge the gap. Now, in a perfect world, we'll come to agreement on that, right? And the draft or and or finalized version will reflect that. And if not, then you sort of iterate and see what happens from, from there. Uh, in the wake of Brexit and the UK going it alone, just curious, you know, how you view UK regulators like the, uh, the CMA and the ICO. Do you see them as being kind of a bridge between Europe and the U.S.? I mean, do you see them as being kind of important voices to listen to and sort of independent? Or, I mean, can you give me any sort of feel for that? So I think if, if we're talking Brexit, then I think, yes, the answer is yes on independence. Um, in terms of them being an important voice, I think definitely, right? They have, you know, even as of last week or so, or so sort of issued out their views on our opinion paper on AI. And so they are very much sort of an important voice in this space. Um, and particularly sort of as you think about tech regulation globally. Like any other regulator, we look forward to the opportunity to actually have discourse and dialogue with them as they figure out sort of areas of importance, not just for the UK, but sort of across the board. Um, obviously, with regulation, there's a, a weighing act, right? Because if you have too much regulation, you don't get as much innovation, typically. And I'm just wondering if any of the new rules on competition or privacy around the world, which are obviously multiplying, has meant that Google has delayed launches or not rolled out products at all. And uh, do you think in those cases that consumers may have been hurt? So I think sort of in the core notion of responsible innovation, the timing of when you launch that particularly innovative product is relevant. So 
Delay, I wouldn't use that term, right? It's the notion of what is the responsible time to offer a product to consumers? Have we explained it? Are we feeling good about the notions of it being secure, there being policies that users understand? Can we actually safeguard against abuse? When those sort of structures are built into place, then you can sort of launch, right? I think the notion, at least for us, is with responsible innovation, the goal is not to hurt consumers by not putting out technology sort of rapidly, but actually at the right time. You'll hear sort of, and this is as we've used AI, we've used it sort of in our products way earlier on before you got to a notion of BARD, if you will. And part of that is the responsible innovation of the use of AI, both within existing products to a sort of standalone interactive chatbot. So for us, I don't necessarily know that it has changed our approach to product launching. We've always maintained that notion of having a responsible approach to innovation um, and arguably moving pretty fast in the grand scheme of things, right? Again, see, sort of bar didn't exist a year ago, and here we are. Um, <laughs> so um, It existed somewhere, just not... Just not, not externally, exactly. And, and I, I think that goes to sort of being very thoughtful about how and when we put technology out into the world and recognizing that users and consumers count on companies to create sort of, I guess, safety, with you will, or like a safety net with the technology that they put out there. And so we take that very seriously. One of the things we've been watching, you know, as we've watched uh, GDPR enforcement ramp up in Europe and um, as we've watched um, how aggressive the FTC has become in the, and the states have become in the United States, uh, California, I think we're yet to see what's going to happen there, but I think we'll, in a year from now, we'll have a good sense of that. One of the things we're wondering sort of big picture is, is there a place for behavioral advertising in the future? And I know Google is one of many companies which is developing, you know, privacy enhancing technologies. But what's your view on that? And what is the role of Google's lawyer, in-house lawyers uh, in terms of making it possible to do targeted advertising that is more privacy protective? But first of all, do you see there being a future for, uh, for uh, targeted ads? So I think there's a future for advertising that continues to take sort of the the privacy concerns of its users at like the four, right, period. Um, And that's a notion that is clear with our product managers as well as with, say, our product counsel and lawyers who are advising the teams and launching new types of ad features and what have you. It goes back to sort of the privacy-preserving technologies of the technology that we are actually sort of launching what is the use of the data? Is it necessary? Does it need to be used in its individualized form or anonymized? And so those questions stay the same. Um, And I think you apply those questions if it's behavioral advertising or if it's whether or not we're launching a new version of Gmail somewhere. Um, Those are constant. Um, So I think the, the future of advertising ongoing, right, because it's it actually helps fuel sort of websites to be able to sort of like offer their content for free to users. So I don't see that disappearing. I think that opportunities and technologies that we have been working on, like privacy sandbox and what have you, to allow for more privacy-preserving technologies in the advertising space are important. What I'd like to see is the rest of the industry also equally lean into that. I think that is harder to do. It takes a, it takes a lift. Um, but I think that the future of advertising sort of depends on more of an industry move to more privacy-preserving preser- technologies writ large. 
If not, it's a little bit of a race to the bottom um, to try to sort of use whatever kind of, you know, dark web pattern that yields you the most result. That's not sort of an area in which Google plays. But I actually do think we can sort of bring the industry along to a better place over time. That's really interesting. I think I hear you saying that you're concerned that, you know, maybe a few bad actors among data brokers could really damage the whole industry. How do you achieve that? I mean, um, obviously, we're seeing the FTC focus on Kocheva now, and there it looks like there's going to be a lot more focus on regulating data brokers. California just passed a delete act. How do you bring the rest of the industry along? That's a really interesting thought. I mean, I think regulators are leaning into it, right, with sort of the very initiatives of which you speak, and I think that's helpful. I also think being able to speak more about sort of privacy-enhancing technologies that exist, um, touting the existence of that. We are not the only people that do this, right? There are others that are out there, and I think making that a bit more of the standard way of, of working is actually really useful. I think we are um, at the end of our time, um, and uh, I kind of wanted to open the floor to you as kind of a last question. What would you like uh, people to know about uh, your role and you know your values as the, the top lawyer at Google? I mean, one, it's a fun job, despite what you read in the newspapers, I think would be the first thing that I would say. But it's an immense privilege, I think, to lead a legal team that truly is on the cutting edge of technology. To have the ability to help support businesses that can fundamentally change an individual's users to be understood, from live translate to just the notion of how we use photos to help a person identify a particular product they have been looking for. That's an incredibly humbling privilege, uh, opportunity, if you will. And so being able to do that in the legal field is nothing short of amazing. And having a team where that's built in. Also sort of, I think, being able to sort of work for a company that truly does focus on the notion of helping others uh, is absolutely worth it. And the notion that we're able to do that on a global sphere, we're able to do that talking to regulators to get them to understand the uniqueness of our business and how we can be more helpful, I think would be something I'd like users to know. It's not sort of a black box, if you will, sort of pitching out technology across the world, but really a thoughtful way of making users' lives more useful with lawyers kind of in, woven into that process and not an after afterthought if the company gets in trouble. So that's a privilege and it's it's a wonderful sort of opportunity in which to practice. What's kept you at Google for, for these years, these uh, many years? I've not been bored. <laughs> that's possible. From working as a product counsel in 2006 on a product then called Ads to being its general counsel now, I have been able to witness just a mind-boggling growth of technology expansion and the way that tech touches people's lives, the way that it gives individuals in the world access to information that previously taking three buses to a library might have been prohibitive. That is incredibly profound and meaningful to me and not boring. Thank you. I really appreciate the time. Thank you. My pleasure. That was Halima Delane Prado speaking to me recently from Google's campus in Mountain View, California. And you can read my story based on that interview. Just go to mlexmarketinsight.com. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Our producer was James Paniki. Please stay tuned for more MLEX interviews in coming weeks. From me, Mike Swift, and everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thanks for your company. Bye.